Thanks very much. Let's pray um, before we hear from God's Word. Lord, we thank you so much um, for your love for this church and your will to build us up. And we pray that you will speak um, to us and accomplish your mission um, this morning. We pray that you'll give us listening hearts and attentive ears as we um, delve into this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you've missed um, the last three, four weeks, um, I talked about the cycle of the book of Judges, um, and uh, I I came across an easy way to remember the cycle. So remember the A, B, C, D, E of the uh, book of Judges. So A, A stands for apostasy, apostasy, which means abandoning one's faith. And this we see in verse 12. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So they abandoned their faith and they go away from the Lord. And actually then it's followed by B, banishment. So God banishes them to a foreign power. In verse 12, once again, because they did evil in the Lord, uh, uh, they, they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. And C then stands for cry. They cry out to God because they are in distress. And then, uh, uh, and this is what happens in verse 15. Again, the Israelites cried out to Yahweh. And God raises a deliverer. D, deliverer. God raises uh, raises a judge. In this case, uh, Ehud, a left-handed man. And then comes the ease, the peace that comes in verse 30. Uh, The land had peace for 80 years. So apostasy, banishment, crying out, deliver, and then the ease that comes afterwards. So this is a cycle, and this will happen again and again in the book of Judges. In fact, it happens over 16 different judges. Um, No, 12 different judges. Yeah, 12 different judges. But as we think about the cycle, I'm sure actually it raises a whole bunch of questions. In fact, this passage is a very difficult passage. I'm sure it has raised many, many different questions in your mind. And so I thought to just answer some of the questions that you might have and organize the sermon around four questions. Sorry, the sermon note has only three, but I actually have four, uh, four uh, questions um, this, uh, um, this sermon. One, does God still punish us? Does God, God still punish us? And number uh, and, and question two: Why why the gory details? There are a lot of details here in this passage, as you'll see um, in a second. Why the gory details? And number three: Does God uh, God condone deceit as a ma- as, as as a means of salvation? And number four: Why this man? And why a man like this? Um, uh, men like Ehud. So those are the four questions I'll try to answer. So the first question, does God still punish us? What well, we hear in this cycle, once again, of Israelites being punished or God uh, banishes them to a Moabite, a power of uh, a foreign power, it seems like God is punishing them for their sins. And if that is the case, does God still do that for us? Does God still punish us for our sins? And there are a few things to uh, to keep in mind as as we think about this question. Um, uh, And then I'll try to answer the questions. A couple of things to keep in mind. First, I want you to know that God hates uh, to see us suffer. God hates to see us suffer. The writer of Lamentation reminds himself, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. 
So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly um, bring affliction or grief to the children of men. Lamentations 3, 32 to 33. God does not delight in seeing his people suffer. And this is clearly shown once again, again and again in the book of Judges as well. As people cry out to God, God is ready to send them a deliverer. And this is not a cry of, these are not cries of repentance. These are just cries of affliction. And God sees, them, sees his people suffer and he sends them a deliverer for a way out to come. In fact, when Jesus dies, later on Jesus, Jesus will come. Jesus dies um, to to usher in a possibility of a world without suffering so that God can take the suffering upon himself and then create a new world where there will not be a suffering. And remember the moving words of Revelation 21.4. Um, he will wipe every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the older things have passed away. If you are crying for your suffering or whatever it is to be taken away, if it's not answered right now, it will be answered in the end when Jesus comes back again. The suffering will end. But unfortunately, we live in a world where sin, fallen world with fallen people, where suffering is part of our life. There will be suffering some, not just in spite of faith, but actually sometimes because of faith. So suffering is, I want to say, an inevitable part of this world as long as we live. But does this mean that our suffering is a form of punishment? It's a retributive punishment. God is seeking to punish us because God is angry at us. And there are, I'm sure some of you who are thinking this right now about your difficult situations whether that's sickness or difficult circumstance in your life, you're asking yourself, is God punishing me for what I have done in the past? I've been aware of a man, of a woman who compromised on her purity uh, in her younger days and has wondered whether that's the reason why she does not have a boyfriend, that God hasn't sent her a new boyfriend. Now, I'm tempted to think similarly whenever I go through things, things like food poisoning, food poisoning. I've had bad food poisoning once, and I just thought to myself, is God punishing me for my sins? And this happens in a trivial things like this, uh, like uh, trivial things too, when, you know, I stump my toes um, on, on the curve or something, and I go through, my mind go, races through all the major and minor sins in my life and go, is God punishing me for my, one of my sins? Is God angry at us? And is suffering uh, part of God's punishment of us? The resounding answer um, in the Bible is no. God is not punishing us for our sins in that way because he's angry. Whatever your sins may be, whenever you're tempted to think like this, remember Paul's words in uh, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has taken our condemnation for us. Jesus has suffered God's wrath for us. We can be sure that no suffering that we go through is retributive. That God is not punishing us for our sins to pay back for the things that we have done. Because Jesus himself has taken our suffering upon himself. 
God has suffered his wrath. Jesus has, uh, Jesus has taken God's wrath upon himself so that we might not be punished in the same way. You cannot be punished twice. God would not be just in punishing you after God has punished Jesus. God has, Jesus has taken our suffering. That wouldn't be just. In fact, if God were to punish us, stumped toe, uh, wouldn't be, wouldn't even begin. I mean, that wouldn't, if that wouldn't factor in, in the sentencing. The, 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 the pain that I had for three days or whatever with uh, um, food poisoning, that wouldn't begin to factor in to making up for the sins of my life. What God has promised, then, is that all our sufferings in this world uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus is a way of, of God disciplining us, forming us, to bring about a good in us. And that's why Paul can once again, in chapter 8, uh, verse 28, assure us that in all things, God works for the good of, uh, good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Whatever you're going through, you can be sure that God is bringing a good out of that situation, that this is our good. And God promises that God will discipline us. Once again, in Proverbs, in Hebrew 12, 6, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Because God loves us, God will bring, upon, uh, God will bring uh, in us suffering or difficult situations that will bring about a good that he's trying to form in us. You can be sure that God is in control of your suffering, that he is bringing hardship in our lives to bring us back from wandering, to awaken us once again, to deepen our faith, to get to know him better, to get to know what the world is like a bit better, to, to make us wise in our hearts, to enrich, uh, 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 enrich our experience and love of God. God does not punish us because he's angry. Not because he's not angry at our sins, but because Jesus has taken that punishment for us. If you're going through something right now, don't be tempted to think of it as a punishment. Jesus stands as our intercessor. He knows what, he, he knows what it's like, and he stands next to God, and he intercedes for us on our behalf. He disciplines us and corrects us because he loves us. So the first question, does God punish us? Well, if it's, uh, it's this, God disciplines us, but God does not punish us to make uh, up for the sins that we've committed. But the second question um, in this text why the gory details? Why the, why the gory details? And in fact, um, the version that Andy read for us, and it's the, probably the version that you have um, with the NIV 1984 version, it actually masks some of the gory details in this text. So uh, verse 22 reads here uh, in our text here, in NIV uh, 1984, uh, the, the, even the handle sank in after the blade which came out his back. Ehud uh, did not pull the sword out, for the fat closed in over it. The NIV, the newest NIV, changes one detail. It says the sword came out of his back, but actually in the new one, it'll say the excrement came out. The guy is so fat. The guy actually is full of things. And so when he's killed, the excrement 
comes out. There's clearly some of mocking of the king here. First, King Moab um, is named Eglon. I'm not sure if that's uh, his, his, his real name because it fits when it, with the story so well because Eglon means little calf or little bull, so like a little calf. He's, the, he's, he's a cow. And actually, add that to the unflattering detail in verse 17. He's, he's called a very fat man. I, I can't think of another verse in the Bible that says, it says singles out this, he's a very fat man. The narrator is calling him a fat cow. When Ehud thrusts this double-edged sword, it goes, and it's about 18 in, inches long, foot and a half, it goes all the way in, and the handle sinks in, and the fat encloses over him. And as he dies, his sphincter explodes. And that's the reason why the attendants don't attend to him right away, because they're outside, and they're smelling the smell that's coming out. And they're thinking in verse 24, surely he must be relieving himself. This is, he must be doing things in the bathroom. That's what they're thinking. And you can imagine the Israelites laughing at the story, slapping their knees in delight. You, on the other hand, might feel slightly uncomfortable with the story because we're, we're people who are called to love our enemies. Why, that is, why, why does the Bible, especially in this case, the Old Testament, and judges seem to relish in such, such details? The simple answer, I think, is that these gory details illustrate our sinfulness, our sinfulness and God's just judgment. Once again, in the Old Testament, the scale goes back and forth, doesn't it? Uh, It tips back and forth between justice and love, punishment and forgiveness and mercy. And that's uh, what we see here is an instance of God's just judgment being illustrated. And we want God, once again, I want to make sure that we want God to be just. We want God to care for justice in this world. Because that means he he cares for the wrongdoings. Uh, He cares for the things that are going uh, badly in this world. He cares and he wants to make that right. God is a just God. And I wonder if Eglon is such a case. I mean, I remember uh, feeling disgusted uh, seeing a picture of Kim Jong-il's picture during the famine of the 90s. 1994 and 1998 in North Korea, three million people died uh, because of uh, because of uh, starvation or uh, starvation-related disease. Three million people, and you see a picture of Kim Jong Il or his family growing fat even in the times of famine. Maybe Eglon, the fat cow, isn't as bad as Kim Jong Il, but according to verse 14, Israelites were subject to Eglon's rule for 18 years. And during that time, Israelites regularly paid tribute. Actually, um, uh, Ehud is selected to bring the tribute to him. He, the, the Israelites bring a regular uh, tribute to, um, uh, to, to uh, Eglon, and Eglon is growing fat out of these tributes while the Israelites are forced to cry out this cry of anguish to God. They're saying, God, help us. For 18 years, we have suffered. And what we see here is that the punishment fits his crime. He is judged. And the goriness illustrates how terrible his rule was. And we see the same similar goriness on the cross, don't we? 
I don't know how many of you have seen the, the Passion of Christ. Um, many people, when it came out, many people complained about the goriness of the movie. And it seemed to me also that Gibson probably went too far with the physical uh, torture of the cross. I mean, I think the psychological and the spiritual suffering that Jesus went through was probably even greater than the physical torture. But at the same time, the movie moved me and many people who saw it because we saw the illustration of the ugliness of our sin and what it means uh, for somebody to pay for our sin. As the hymn says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Why does God, if you ask, why does God pick such an ugly way for Jesus to die? The the crucifixion was the worst form of punishment at the time in the Roman Empire. Why does he pick that form of punishment for Jesus? Well, I think one might be, one answer might be that it illustrates the, 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 the depravity and the ugliness of our sin. It's on display at God as God judges, uh, judges Eglon here and later on Jesus on the cross. So why the gory details? Because it illustrates our sinfulness and God's just judgment. The third question this, uh, the text might raise is, does God condone deception as method of salvation? Or does this violence... Um, that might linger in our minds because, you know, as we think about this, well, it seems the method is sort of below God, below God. Does God condone trickery as Ehud clearly tricks people into, um, he, he says he's got a message, he's got a tribute, but actually then um, he, he, he's got a dagger for Eglon. And I think in order to answer this question, does God condone conception, uh, deception? Um, uh, deception as part of uh, God's uh, way, uh, means of salvation. I think what we have to read, once again, we have to put this story in the context of the entire book of Judges. The whole book of Judges, the direction of the book of Judges, it goes from high to low, from noble to ignoble. When the Spirit of God comes to Othniel, remember last week, he goes to war. I mean, at the time, that seems like the most noble way of fighting an enemy. You raise up an army and you go to war and fight the enemy fair and square. And Othniel completely trusts in God to deliver, so he's able to do that. He goes, goes forth. But that's the first cycle in this book. That was the high point. And as we will see from every single judge that comes afterwards, we'll go slightly less and less and less. In fact, Yahweh God is almost absent from this entire story. Yahweh, God isn't mentioned in the plot. Um, um, The only time that when God is mentioned is when Ehud talks about God in verse 20. But we're not even really sure if Ehud is bringing God in to uh, trick Eglon or if he actually has a message from God. He says he's got a message from God. But we're not really sure if that's really from God. The whole tactic seems dirty. He doesn't seem like this model warrior of, you know, in the cloth of Joshua or Caleb or Othniel. This is what one commentator says about Ehud. Ehud operates 
This is sort of in the middle of that, um, the, the quote there. Ehud operates like a typical Canaanite, Canaanite of his time, cleverly, opportunistically, and, and violently, and apparently for his own glory. But the narrator appears not to be concerned at all about the morality of the affair. He simply describes what happened from his point of view, and in, do, in so doing, reminds the reader, in the dark days of governors, the judges, the tools available to God are crude. Ehud goes through this method, not because God told him to do it, but probably because he does not trust in God fully. Rather than fighting his enemy fair and square, he feels like he has to employ trickery and deception to assassinate Eglon. And of course, once again, this goes well through the trajectory, trajectory of the book. In the next chapter, you will hear of Deborah's great faith. But the judge that Deborah, Deborah is judge, but the, the, the commander, the, the warrior that he's coupled, she's coupled with is Barak. And Barak is a coward, as you'll see next week. Barak does not want to go to war unless he says, if you come to war with me, I'll go. Um, and then in the next chapter, um, uh, we'll hear uh, a story of Gideon. And Gideon's lack of trust in God is again and again uh, portrayed when he asks for confirmation. Do you really want me to do this? Really, can you do this? Is, is this a way that you want me to do this? Um, it's illustrated again and again, and it goes just downhill from there. God does not condone these methods, but it does show that God can use fallen people, fallen purposes to bring about his will, his end, without approving their flaws. He's able to accomplish the, 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 the purpose of saving uh, the Israelites, despite the fact that Israelites and their leaders are acting like the pagans of the day. These stories of deliverance, every single one of them, will leave you wanting for more. Leave you a little, with a little taste, no, a distaste in your mouth. And once again, I want to say that all that stands in great contrast to what God does when he personally gets involved in Jesus, doesn't it? The story of Jesus coming down to earth has no fault. In fact, it seems to me that every detail of Jesus coming down on earth is so surprising and inspiring in every detail. You know, Jesus mingles with sinners as the Israelites were mingling with the pagans of the day, the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes, but he doesn't condone their sins. In fact, people are drawn to them, to, to Jesus, uh, but he, he's tempted in every way, but yet he remains without sin. And though he has power when, to summon uh, the heavenly army with the word, he restrains himself and is led to a trial, mocked and spat on and, 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 um, and eventually crucified. Then he rises again on the third day to show that he wasn't a helpless victim, but a king who has command over life and death. But that he laid down his life as a ransom for many. When the salvation story, the Old Testament stories, uh, there are a bunch of salvation stories, it will reach its climax in Jesus Christ. And when it reaches its climax, we find nothing wrong his with his method of saving. But if you're asking yourself, why? 
Why did we need the Old Testament? The Old Testament ways of salvation, like the the salvation that we see uh, with Ehud. Why doesn't God send Jesus right away? That's a big question. I think that's a whole uh, sermon in and of itself. But quickly, I want to say, I just don't think we could have had Jesus without the Old Testament. We wouldn't have known why Jesus really needed to die. We wouldn't have known how God breaks, his heart breaks in our sin uh, because of our sin, how God burns also with anger because of our sin. We wouldn't have known that actually any human method of salvation wasn't going to be enough. We wouldn't have known God's longing to have fellowship, not out of fear, but out of love. God in his wisdom sends Jesus when the time reached its climax. And God will send Jesus back again in the second coming when the time reaches its fullness. Why? I mean, it's a, um, does God condone de- uh, de- deception and violence? The, the answer is no. The answer is no. But in, the, in a fallen world with fallen people, God still brings about his, his will through these people without approving their flaws. And once again, finally, um, the fourth question is, why this guy? Why Ehud? Because, as we have seen, he's not a sort of upright man um, in some ways. Uh, Why this guy, when he does not fit um, the profile of of the right judge? Ehud is probably even more unlikely judge than you think. Um, So the first detail that the narrator offers about Ehud is in verse 15 that he is a left-handed man. That in and of itself would make him an unlikely and surprising hero, probably, because not only he's, he's a left-handed, he, he's, he's, he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And do you, know, do you remember what Benjamin means? It means son of my right hand. He comes from a tribe that, whose name enshrines the culture's favoring of right-handedness. Right-handedness is associated with good things. God swears by his right hand. He has pleasures by his right hand. His chosen one sits at his right hand. Right-handedness was a symbol of power and ability. At the very least, Ehud is left-handed. But it's probably a bit more than that. NIV translates this passage as left-handed man, but literally, it's man restricted in his right hand. It's a man restricted in his right hand. It sounds like the, the Ehud's right hand might have been deformed or disabled in some ways. I mean, man restricted in his right hand is not uh, the most obvious way of describing a left-handed person. Once again, just um, put Ehud in contrast to Othniel of last week. Othniel seems to be a predictable type of a leader. He comes from a good family. He's married a good wife. He comes from the tribe of Judah, uh, had a proven track record of victory. Ehud is none of these. He comes from one of the smallest tribes, tribe of Benjamin. At the very least, he's left-handed. Probably he's physically deformed in his right hand. He would have been assumed to be ineffective. But Ehud is not the only unlikely hero in this book, in the book of Judges. In fact, after Othniel there's no other, every single one of these leaders, uh, the, uh, the judges, would have been somebody that you expect, you would expect as a leader. Deborah, though faithful and brave, is a woman. Barak is a coward. 
Gideon is a nobody, and Jephthah is a bandit, and Samson is, is, um, is a thug. It's a, I mean, he's, he's, he's awful. Why does God choose them? I remember Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27-29. God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and despised, uh, despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God is full of grace. God takes people from every margin of the society and uses them. There might be some of you who think that you're not smart enough, pretty enough, strong enough, educated enough, eloquent enough, whole enough um, in many ways, physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it is, to be used by God. You might think that it's not impossible. God can do it because God is God, but it's unlikely that I might be a leader. I might be chosen by God to do something for God. And I hope you'll be encouraged by Ehud. Not just Ehud, but all the judges, and not just the judges here, many unlikely heroes in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God can and will use everyone. But why um, does God do this? Um, do you think it's possible that, that the stories that we've heard, once again, these, the, 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 the leaders and the judges, the whole thing was not, the leadership wasn't supposed to be about people and their ability as leaders. That we were never to put any leader on a pedestal and worship them as idols. Once again, we're reminded that God is the only source of goodness, justice, holiness, power, mercy, might, compassion, and grace. That we are to give him the, 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 the worship that he deserves. In fact, once again, all these people and all the stories in the Old Testament in some ways point us back to Christ. Ehud was an outsider. Jesus was an ultimate outsider. No one outside of the few uh, witnessed his birth. It didn't come with a, a fanfare. He was, he, was, he was born on a manger. He came from Galilee, and he was despised for it. He came, I mean, people remember people saying, oh, how can a man come from Galilee? How can the Messiah come from, for example, think of it, how can, how can the, the, the leader, the next CEO of, CEO of Hong Kong come from the new territories, from Shangshui, no less? It's the things like that. That I mean, no offense to people who live in Shangshui, the great people um, there. Um, when he gained popularity, the authorities rejected him, despised him. Who would have thought that the man dying on the cross, the man dying on the cross with the crown of thorn, was the savior, the king of the whole world. But he was. But he was. He took our punishment. So we might never have to be punished again. He was crucified on the cross because of our sin. To, to demonstrate how terrible our sin is and to demonstrate God's justice in punishment. He did this through a perfect plan of salvation to show God's perfect holiness and love a pl- and through a plan that has no fault. 
And he did this while exalting the lowly, by being the unlikeliest of saviors, the savior who dies helpless on the cross. And I'm reminded of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1.25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than, than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Let's give God praise and glory for that. Let's pray.